You know, as Ryan mentioned, it's been quite a week, hadn't it, church? Boy, it has been difficult. Um, and we've heard about some members that have been struggling in this way or that way. And, and please, if you're struggling and you've had something happen at your house or something's going on, please don't struggle alone. Let us know how we can help you. We'd love to reach out. Uh, on Wednesday morning, uh, my wife and, and daughter and I happened to be up here at the building uh, and a two-inch valve broke uh, that feeds all the water into our sprinkler system that keeps us uh, safe in case of a fire. And so it's amazing how much a two-inch uh, pipe can spew at, at full full force. So it, it flooded our offices and our, our entranceway over here into the gym and down into the worship center. So it was quite a mess. And I appreciate all the volunteers that came up. Uh, to help us get that right, but in particular, uh, Clayton Ritchie for all of the hours that he uh, spent up here. So if you see Clayton, thank him for his hard work because this place was a real mess, and I'm glad we're able to. So let's show absolutely sharp appreciation, Clayton, for all this hard work. Th this morning, I, I want us to begin with a question. We've been talking about a journey of faith, and journey is kind of a a moving. I mean, it's, it's designed to create movement. So I want to ask you, where are you on your journey of faith? Would you describe yourself as moving forward? Okay? Or would you describe yourself as, well, maybe I pause for a moment. I'm just catching my breath. It's been a difficult year, been a difficult uh, challenge as we're going through all this. Or would you say you're taking a step backwards? In reality, what we have been told is that if we're not moving forward, we are moving backwards. And so we believe that, well, if I just pause for a moment, I'll be able to catch my breath. But in reality, that's not the case. And so we need to realize it's important that we move forward. And so the writer of Hebrews has been making a case for the first 11 chapters that your journey with Jesus is important. And there's no other option. And he lays out, or she, we don't know, uh, lays out the case of the superiority of Jesus Christ and how important he is. And so it's going through this, and it's almost like you get to a point, and the Hebrew writer is like, okay, I pretty well have exhausted, at least up to in this letter, all the things I'm going to say about Jesus. Of course, there's tons and tons and, and more and more uh, that we could say about Jesus. But he says, I've made my case. Now, what say you? What are you going to do on your journey of faith? Because there's some that, are, that have stopped. Some that are considering to take a step backwards. Some aren't meeting with the believers like they once were. Some are looking other directions. And the Hebrew writer is like, what about you? Are you going to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And not just forward. Are you going to move upward in your direction? Upward to where? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it says, Upward to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. So to these believers that are considering returning to Jerusalem, the Hebrew writer's like, you're walking up to the wrong mountain. 
you need to realize that the mountain of Judaism takes you to Sinai, out to the desert. And we're pursuing and walking towards and ascending towards a different mountain, Mount Zion. And then he lays out the case saying, let me tell you about these two mountains. And this will tell you why it's important that we hitch our cart, why we continue on the path that Jesus is leading us to. He said, Mount Zion? Okay, Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai was the mountain marked by fear and terror. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 19, it says, Moses was even afraid to go up there. And he was invited. I don't want to go up. You got to. God told you. I know, but I'm scared. He said, why would you want to go down that mountain? They had a head stop. They put fences around. If, if cattle made their way up there, they had to stone them because it was a holy mountain. And you couldn't go up there. Why would you want to start going back that direction? Go towards the mountain of grace and, and forgiveness of love. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. Mount Zion? This is innumerable company of people that be invited. The list just keeps growing. God says, come on. Any of you that are willing to say, Jesus is my Lord and Master, and put him on in baptism, and start that journey, come on. Come to Mount Zion. Don't return to Sinai. What else does he say? Mount Sinai, the old covenant that was made complete, at least for the moment, with the blood of animals. But you had to keep going. Well, Mount Zion, well, that covenant is sealed and ratified by Jesus Christ, God's only son. It's a sacrifice once and for all. It's done. There's no longer taken, how am I going to take care of this sin? That sin has been taken care of. Why would you want to go backwards? Mount Sinai is all about exclusion, keeping people away. Mount Zion is about inclusion. It's about an invitation to all who will come. Mount Sinai was about guilty men living in fear. Mount Zion, God's children made perfect. Do you remember our passage from last week in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 40? God had planned something better for us. Better. Mount Zion is better than Sinai. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would we, you and I, be made perfect. To keep walking on your journey, but make sure you're journeying towards the right mountain, not Mount Sinai. Don't go to the desert. Go to the city, the city of David, the new Jerusalem, Mount Sinai, where we commune with God for all of eternity. Are you clear on which mountain you're supposed to be heading towards? Yeah. Okay, how do we get there? If we're heading towards Zion, I'm going to keep walking. How do I get there? How do I stay on that path? How do I ascend that mountain? How do we do that? The first thing I would tell us is we're designed to be in community. So climb with friends. 
climb with friends. The, um, Jim Nord shared an awesome study at the University of Virginia. He said, if you have a hill that you've got to climb, he said, if you start off in a negative disposition and you look at that hill that you got to go up, it appears 30% steeper than it actually is and how you would normally perceive it if you have a positive viewpoint on this journey you're going to take. So if you're starting off in the hole because of your negativity, it's going to look like a third higher than what you've got to climb. But they went on to follow up the study with another one. And it says, if you're climbing alone, that mountain, that hill that you've got to climb is going to appear 20% higher and more difficult than if you've got a friend standing in front of you, not even looking up to the hill, that friend's just sitting there with you. You're like, you know what? I can do this and I can make it up this hill because we're designed to be in community. Well, the problem is the people that the Hebrew writer is, is trying to address in this letter in and around Rome, a lot of them are kind of taking a step back. They haven't been coming to church. They've been kind of taking a step back from this community going, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. I don't want to go through this persecution. I don't want my kids to go through this. Can't I just get along for a while with the dominant culture around me? Why do I have to keep enduring this? The cost is too high. And the Hebrew writer is like, you've got to climb with others, and I've got you covered. Here's what he says. He says, you need to climb with friends, and I've got you covered. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, yeah, you're going through persecution, going through hardship, and isolation from family has been difficult, but don't think you're alone. You remember, we just got through going through these 18 characters that you learned about growing up in Bible class. Consider their walk. Consider their journey. Consider that they never saw exactly where they were going in this world, but they could see it from a distance. Fix your eyes up there as well and keep walking as they did. So you've got this cloud of witnesses that's gone before you. But the, the word for cloud in, in ancient Greek was actually a phrase that meant a large gathering of people. So think of it as a crowd of witnesses that are going with you. So it's not just um, these 18 characters that we read here, but it's also others that are part of this crowd. Maybe other people in Scripture that inspire you that weren't a part of this 18. Oh, the list can keep going. But it was also other friends and family members had passed away. It's the martyrs that were carried into the Colosseum that they know that they lived right up to the moment of their death living for Jesus Christ. He said, they're part of your crowd. And as you make your way up the ascent up to Mount Zion, just imagine that you've got switchbacks as you go. And as you're going up here, you're like, there's King David. Are you Daniel? You still got, you have a lion next to you. I'm guessing you're Daniel. Yep, yep, the lion's mouth is still closed. 
Are, are you Rahab the prostitute? Yes, I am. Well, that was a long time ago, but I'm a God follower now. You bend the corner, you go up again, and who do you see? Who is part of your crowd of witnesses? It's around the corner, I picture my grandparents who set the course for our family, both strong believers on both sides, who taught us and taught our parents to be those faith. I want to see them as I'm making my journey up. I want to see my dad that passed away in 2003 of cancer. I, I think of Francis McClanahan and other well, just uh, teachers that were there at Waterview Church of Christ that taught all of those Bible classes on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. They gave up their time because they wanted to make sure we had that crowd of biblical witnesses that were part of our bigger cloud. I think of Stanley Ship, the evangelist that gave me a year and a half of his life, literally taking me around the world investing in me, talking about evangelism, and talking about how we connect with others and modeling that for me. That's part of my crowd of witnesses. Who's in your crowd that is inspiring you, that is telling you, keep going? Who would be devastated if you walked away from that? Who's part of your cloud, that crowd that keeps growing of those that inspired you as you keep going, you know? So we've got to climb with friends because our perception of reality is transformed by the presence of others. So don't climb alone. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 continues on. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in this sin that so easily entangles. So if we're climbing up Mount Zion, knowing we not climb alone, we climb with friends, but we've also got to lighten our load. If you've ever been on wilderness trek or a backpacking thing, if you're a novice, you pack a bunch of stuff that you think you're going to need, some luxury items and stuff, and then as you start making your way up that first day, you start um, cursing inside each of those items. You look for places to dig holes and bury stuff that you don't need because that pack gets heavier and heavier. And, and the longer that you travel and the, the, the more times that you go on different expeditions and stuff, the smaller your pack becomes because you know how important it is to keep a light load. And so what the Hebrew writer is telling us is, this journey is long. Please lighten your load as you go up. So what are the things we need to get rid of? He says, well, every weight and every sin that's holding you back. So what are these non-sinful weights that we need to discard? That we need to pull over, take our pack off, unzip it, and go, let's bury that. Let's get rid of that. Well, there are things in our life that are neutral, meaning they're not good or bad. Sometimes there's good, but it's not the best. So sometimes our decisions are not between what's right and what's wrong, but what's better or best. And so we have to make decisions about our time, right? 
our talents, God's given us gifts. How are we going to use those? In what venue will you use your talents? And certainly our treasures. So we've got to realize that there are things that are important um, and things that are of utmost importance. How many have ever gotten sucked into a hobby that that hobby was designed to be something that was going to be encouraging and take a little time and it becomes all-consuming? Suddenly, all of your time and your talents and your treasures go into that hobby, and it's like your life revolves around that. There's nothing wrong with that activity, but could that time be better spent building your family, strengthening your marriage, be involved in kingdom activities? Well, I can. I've invested so much money into this. I've got I've to kind of honor that and carve out a large block of time. How many of you have been asked to be a part of a board? You're like, well, that's quite an honor. And then after a few meetings, you're like, I'm not sure when I'm contributing here. And you get the notice, it's time for another board meeting. You're like, oh, man, I don't want to go to that. And so these are things that are good or neutral, but sometimes they take us away and they gobble up our resources of our time, talent, and treasures. And we're like, Okay, that's a weight I need to put aside to devote that time and my talents and my treasures towards things that are going to get me and my family and those I care about the most to Zion. Can we say those weights need to be cast aside so we can choose something better? They're time wasters. Well, okay, is there a sin that easily ensnares us because that's the second thing you've got these weights but you got this sin that ensnares us well the word ensnares in greek is epistation and it can be translated four different ways and see which way you think kind of fits a, a sin that's easily avoided a sin that's admired a sin that's ensnaring which is how the NIV chooses to, to use this, or sin that's dangerous. I got to thinking this week, I think sin is all of those, don't you? And what do I mean by that? Well, there are some sins that are easily avoidable. They don't surprise us. We see them out there. And what we want to do is, can we get as close to this sin without stepping over, right? You know, the Jews had something right in that they tried to put up hedges that would back us away from the ledge, but they became more a hindrance. But their original intent was to keep you away from sin. But sometimes we like to get right up to the edge. Are you aware that every year a dozen people on average fall into the Grand Canyon? Why? Well, they're taking selfies, and they get just a little bit too close. That's an unavoidable cause of death. I mean, that's an avoidable cause of death that, well, it just happens. There are about 19 on cruise ships. I think that's something else, okay? But, yeah, so that's something that we see that sin, and it can be avoided, but yet we choose to get close to it. Number two, we admire other sins for what we get in return. So maybe it's acceptance into a group. If I'm going to run with this crowd, then I've got to behave in this way. And I get the acceptance that comes with that. I'm crossing some lines. 
I'm getting into some gray areas here, but hey, I get something out of that. I do better at work if things become a little fuzzy. I make more money if I can hedge on this. It's just kind of how you do business. And, you know, if I'm going to give to the church in the capital campaign, well, I've got to kind of color outside the lines here. And so that's a sin that we get a benefit out of. What's the others? Some sins are ensnaring and especially harmful. So we're introduced to a practice in our lives that we think, I can sample that and walk away. But suddenly it becomes a sin that we do regularly. And then it becomes a sin. We can't imagine how we're going to function without that. I think of just substance abuse and what it's done to our country. Do you know almost 150 people die per day of opioid overdoses? Why would you ever get started in that? Well, I had this surgery. Well, you know, and I did. And then it just becomes you're ensnared in something. And so that's a sin that keeps us from pursuing Zion. And then finally, the sins that are dangerous. Are there sins that are more dangerous than others? I I think there are. Uh, Paul draws a distinction with sexual sins. We like to say a sin's a sin, a sin. I, I don't believe that. I think Paul says there's a clear line between sexual sins and everything else. Here, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. He said, brothers and sisters, watch out for this one. This one is going to not only harm you, it's going to blow up your whole world. Flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a man commits is outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It does something in here. And I wish I had time to unpack this. But just realize there are more dangerous sins in our lives that can totally destroy our faith walk with our Heavenly Father. And when I meet people that have gone through one or several of these different types of sin, we have conversations And we're having conversations about faith and sin. And usually there's two reactions when you get to this point where your life has been taken off course from Zion and you're wrapped up in the middle of this sin. Number one is to recognize where I am and go, oh my, I never thought I would do this, that I would cross this line, that I would find myself in this position. And so I've got to repent, not just feel bad. Repent is doing a 180 and go, I got to get back to where I was going. I've got to repoint this ship to where I'm navigating towards Zion, not over here. Because this is eating my lunch. And by the way, that's the correct response. The other is, you know what, preacher? I appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm not sure I believe in God. You know, it was just something my family encouraged me to do. I don't think I have faith. Why is that a response? Because guilt eats us alive. 
if we have a heavenly father that we love and we know God acts first on our behalf and yet we know that there is a lifestyle of holiness that we're trying to move towards living with our holy father for all of eternity. If we're making steps away from that, it eats us up inside. So we've either got to do away with the sin that's killing us or we do away with the Father that's providing the guilt, that pressing down that David talked about within his bones. He says, Lord, ease up. That spirit is killing me because of what I've done. That's the spirit talking. So either you've got to curse the spirit Deny the Father and walk away so you can maintain your spiritual, your, this sinful lifestyle. Or you say, God, I got to get back. Which will be your choice? He said, you can't continue on trying to drag this sin up the mountain to Zion. It, it just doesn't work. So we keep going. You can't keep going up because it's a different path. you got to lay them aside. You know, the first time that we took our kids to Disney, uh, they were very young. And, and Disney's pretty smart because they get you in and, you know, you got to pay a bazillion dollars to get through the gates. And you meet a couple of characters. And you're like, oh, the wonderful world of Disney is great. Okay, but before you can go to any of the attractions, before you can see anything, go to show, hop on a ride, you've got to ride the gauntlet through Main Street, don't you? And what's Main Street? It's about 75 souvenir shops. And so as an adult, you're like, eh, I don't know, that's going to end up in a garage sale in a couple of weeks. You know, I, I don't want any of this. But kids are like, oh, I want this. And so there's t-shirts and there's hats and there's autograph books for characters. As if you're going to someday, uh, how much is the goofy worth? You know, I mean, you're like, why buy this? And there's pens and there's stuffed animals. And I'm sitting there going, okay, it's going to look like trash once you go through the water on the right. And so the kids, it's just all consuming. You go from one store to another, bouncing back and forth. And finally, you just have to kind of call a timeout with your kids and go, this isn't it. This is something they're trying to program in you. Let's get going to what we came for. I wonder if God's up there going, time out. You're getting so wrapped up on what's happening in this world. You're missing the kingdom of God that's been introduced right now. He said, sin, you're going to miss the kingdom of God if you're wrapped up in this. But it is so easy for us to take our gaze and bring it down. We find ourselves going from gift shop to gift shop, trying to fill some void that won't be filled until we realize it's our Heavenly Father that we're heading towards, and we're instruments and children of the kingdom of God moving towards Zion. Hebrew writer says, you're going to run with perseverance. You've got to run the race that's marked out for us. How do we do that? Verse 2. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author who writes the story, that writes the script, that gives us the map to where to go, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we can only make it on this journey if our eyes are fixed on Jesus. We put up the blinders and say, I'm not going to get pulled off into this. 
Uh, that's good, but it's not great. I want what's great. I want what is eternal. I want my heavenly Father. So we lock our eyes on him. He becomes our focus. He becomes our inspiration and our example. For those of you that have given your life to Jesus, remember the day of your baptism. Do you remember that day? Whether it's at your home church, at summer camp, I don't know, a mission trip. Where were you when you were baptized? When you took that step of faith, you were responding to something. That was a step of faith, but it was also a step on a journey of faith. It was a response. It was outwardly. It was a pledge of good conscience. First Peter chapter 3 saying, I don't know where this goes, but I'm taking a step of faith and I'm walking towards you just like Noah did. Just like Moses did as they walked on dry ground. That's our baptism. We walk through. So we start that journey. What we need to realize is Jesus not only inspires our journey, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, the one who began a good work in you that you responded to on the day of your baptism will carry it out to completion when we continue on the course to Zion. Keep going. Then I, I think the Hebrew writer kind of kicks us in the pants and kind of taunts us a little bit, at least in my mind, in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Come on, you should be teaching others by now. You should be more mature in your faith. You should be a source of strength for others, but you're not. You've got to, boy, you've got to get going with those feeble arms and weak knees. Make level the path of your feet. How do we get stronger? How do we level out that path? How do we put those blinders on? How do we keep going to Zion? The Hebrew writer said it's through a path of holiness. It's through letting some of the stuff of this world go and grabbing a hold of the things of the world to come. Without holiness, we won't see God. The Hebrew writer says it's like Esau who sold his inheritance for a bowl of porridge. It's one of the most heartbreaking stories that you're introduced to early on in Genesis. You've got the two twin boys. Esau is, you know, he's the hunter. He's, you know, he, he's his father's son. He goes out. And you got Jacob who remind, remains back in the tents, learns to cook from his mama. Well, Esau's gone out, and uh, there wasn't anything to shoot, uh, you know, and it was just crazy. The ducks hadn't come in. It was just too not cold enough, what, whatever. He comes back in, and he's like, I am famished. And Jacob's like, I got something over for you. I'll bring it over. Nanti, give me your birthright. My what? You're firstborn, technically we're twins, but you came out first, so you get dad's extra blessing. And what does that matter? I won't get it for years to come, and I won't be alive if I don't eat stew now. Okay, you've got my word, you've got my birthright. Brings over the lentil stew. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, 
though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's not cash out our faith. Nothing in this world is worth losing your faith over. Nothing. No job. No relationship. No opportunity. Nothing is worth cashing our faith out, church. We keep going. He said, what are some things you can cash your faith out on? Bitterness. Bitterness with other believers. Divisions. And how many people have you seen believers that have a bitterness that has caused them to lose track of the joy of Jesus Christ? If Jesus can have joy as he's going to the cross, why can't we have joy and forgive our brother or sister that's wronged us? Why are we allowing bitterness about what's going on in our country to where we can't keep off Facebook on what's going on? Why are we surprised when people that don't know Jesus don't act like Jesus? We are not the home team, folks. We're the visiting team. This world is not our own. Let them have it. Sure, we can do all we can in this world, but this world is not it. And it's not going to grab my bitterness. My joy is not for sale based on what's happening in Washington, D.C. church. It's not going to happen because I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God first. That's what's important. And I'm not going to let bitterness creep into my heart because once it gets hold, it is hard to get it out. We've got to keep moving forward. Charles Purgeon says this, this holiness is a thing of growth. It, it may be in the soul as a grain of mustard seed, and yet not developed. It may be in the heart as a wish and a desire, rather than anything that's been fully realized. It's a groaning. It's a panting. It's a longing. It's a striving. What Spurgeon is saying is, don't get discouraged if your faith is still like a mustard seed. Jesus said, I can do a lot with that. It's what's in your heart. What are you longing for? What do you dream about? It's got to be the world to come. And God is at work making you holy. It's not what you do, but it is choices that keep us away from holiness. We got to keep moving forward. Spurgeon goes on to describe four types of people who try to get along without holiness. Church, I tell you, this is convicting. He said, these are Christians that say, I can have Jesus and not be holy. Here's how they do it. One is the Pharisee. The, the Pharisee is confident in outward ceremonies instead of true holiness. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18. He's like, you guys are the best of the best. You know your, you know your scriptures back and forward. You come to worship, you honor me with your lips. I haven't gotten your heart. And until I get your heart, all this other stuff doesn't matter. So our holiness starts with the heart and works our way outward. It's also the moralist. It's like, you know what? Things are going pretty good for me. God must be blessing me. So therefore, I just keep going on through life, doing the things that I want to do. And I'm morally superior to others. But I don't have to pursue holiness. Then there's the experimentalist. Their entire faith is an inward proposition, but it never makes its way outward. And so 
you know, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. Oh, really? I don't see that in your life. Well, it's kind of it's me and God. You know, I've got this thing going on that you can't see that's happening because it's, it's inside here. And then finally, it's the opinionist. The Christian life is about believing right doctrines and is unconcerned with holiness. As long as I worship correctly, as long as I go to the correct church, well, then how I live that life out, with or without the joy of Jesus, it doesn't matter because my name is in the right picture directory at the right church. So the Hebrew writer says, no, we're called to run a race. And it's a race towards holiness. It's not what are you willing to give up. It's how much God are you willing to take in on this journey? How much of the kingdom is going to occupy your thoughts? So we've got to connect our beliefs with our lifestyle. Our faith stances have to match our faith practices, church, don't they? So number one, we climb with friends. Number two, we lighten the load. And, and finally, we just got to keep going to the end. I want you, if you can, in your mind's eye, to picture that final walk up to the top. If you've never been to the Holy Lands, it's hard to understand. Because Scripture always talks about how they went up to Jerusalem. And it's confusing for us because we do stuff north-south. And so if they're up in, in Galilee, they would come down to Jerusalem. But everyone in that day thought of it as more elevation. And so anywhere you are in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. And, and definitely the Dead Sea. I mean, that's, that's rock bottom. But it's, it's an ascent all the way up as you go towards Jerusalem. And as you get closer, oh, you can see it. And then there's a temple mound, the highest point. And so believers, as they would make the pilgrimage towards Jerusalem, they would sing one or multiple of the songs of ascent. There's 15 of them. And so they would sing as they're marching on to Zion, right? As they're, they're making their way up. The Levites, as they would enter the temple, they would always come up the southern steps, and there's 15 of them. And so they would either recite or sing those songs of ascent as they went up those steps. And if you go, it's pretty cool. Uh, they got some that are shorter and some that are wider. And the ones that are wider, that's so you can bend down and you can pray as you're ascending up into the temple. And so it's this ascent upward. And so he talks about, the Hebrew writer says, all right, imagine when you finally get up to the top of Zion and, and you're making your way up, you're cresting the hill and your life is over and, and you're heading into the city on the hill, the new Jerusalem on top of Zion and you're finally going into God's presence. What's that going to be like? Verse 22, well, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. I mean, you're here the heavenly Jerusalem, and you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Can you see them? Can you hear them? To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And you've come to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous 
made perfect. Can you see it in your mind? As you go walking into this, this is not your retirement. This is your eternal home with your Heavenly Father. You go walking in, and you hear the angels. You come into God's presence, and you are coming before God, the judge, the righteous judge that's going to determine. And he opens up the book, and your name is there. Why? You've been made perfect. You've been called righteous. It is the righteous believers made perfect through the blood of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of God. That's why our name is there. That's why it'll be called. That's why we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in for all of eternity. That's the journey of faith. That's what we're going after. Do you believe? If you do, keep going. Walk with purpose. Walk in holiness. You're almost home. If you're ready to take a step, do so today as we stand and sing. Let's do this. Let's take a step. Let's say, Lord, I want to go towards Mount Zion. Let's sing together.